Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Before you get to the show, make sure you check out theringer.com for our extensive NBA playoff coverage leading up to the NBA Finals. Also look out for a 2019 NBA Draft Guide, which now features 50 of Kevin O'Connor's scouting reports. The Draft Guide has a first-round mock draft, big board rankings from our draft experts like Jonathan Charks and Danny Chow, and much more to come leading up to the draft itself on June 20th. Once again, check out the Ringer's 2019 NBA Draft Guide and all of our NBA coverage over on theringer.com. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. Hey, guys. Um, first of all, um, schedule has been a little funky lately, so I, I apologize for that. I know it's hard to know when this pod is dropping, and I promise you, maybe in the next few weeks or so, we'll come up... Um, you know, I've just been real busy, to be honest with you. I got to put it on me. But I think we'll try to have a more reliable schedule in terms of when the pot is coming out. Right, Kyle? That's what we're kind of working on right now. And coming up, just to give you some previews, you know, in the next year and a half, we have the elections. So I'm going to try to bring on more uh, political people, uh, people on both sides of the aisle. I'll be talking to some people on the right, some people on the left, some people you may find controversial, <laughs> some people you may not. But I want to hear, this is one of those true both sides type of, of thing that I want to do right now. You know, I want to have, and you know me, I, I just want to have conversations with people. I'm not trying to gotcha or that type of thing. But there's a lot of people on the, on the right that I want to have some conversations with. Some people who are kind of emerging right now as voices. Some people who've been established there for a while. And even uh, as I've had before, some people who have been on the right for a while and have a big problem with what's going on. But not everybody does. It's kind of interesting. Um, today's show, Michael Lewis, by the way, really fun conversation. So I was great t- talking to Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball, Big Short, Blindside, all that good stuff. Has a new podcast called Against the Rules, which is really good. Typical Michael Lewis fashion. He finds uh, subjects that he just immerses himself in. And this this one's pretty interesting. He he approaches his podcast. Uh, it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. It's a produced one. But he talks about uh, how referees are in our world and how they're treated and the different referees in our life and that kind of stuff and uses the literal referee in sports and starts from there. It's pretty cool. Hope you enjoyed that. We talked about it a week ago. But anyhow, there's a lot going on right now. Um, first of all, I just want to give thanks to an organization that gave me an award last week. I should mention this. It's the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault. And I want to thank them for giving me an award of speaking up against this issue. And I told them, I said, guys, I'm, I don't know what to say. You know, I'm a little taken aback on this. I mean, I am a comedian, for Christ's sakes, but they were— they wanted to recognize me for as many times as we spoke up against Cosby. And, you know, this is one of my issues and talked about on our show. And I even, you know, got a laugh when I said, this is the Alliance Against Sexual Assault. Is there a group for sexual assault? <laughs> you know, what group is that? And then I pause and say, every civilization <laughs> since the beginning of man, you know, <laughs> and that got a big round of applause. But it was such a great group. And Please, I'm going to retweet uh, something that they posted recently talking about this night. Um, Anna Maria Arquilo, the woman who was shouting at Jeff Flake in that elevator, which was a fantastic moment. And she's she's an amazing person, gave an amazing speech. She was also honored. It was really a great night. 
But I'm going to retweet their information so you can support this cause, guys. There's so many levels of support for women who have been sexually assaulted or are dealing with that issue. Everything from just emotional support to financial support to emergency room support. There's all kinds of issues that you may not have even thought about. And this is one of those worthwhile organizations that I highly recommend looking into. And if it's not this one, maybe there's another one that's similar to it that is more to your liking. But, but you know, these are definitely an area in our society that we could use everybody's help. So having said that, I did want to talk about, and I apologize, this is not a funny subject like this last one. This is a very keeping a 100 subject. And it's what's happening right now in our society in terms of abortion. We're at a crossroads right now. The shots have been fired across the bow, guys. I mean, people need to know that there is a serious attempt right now to repeal Roe v. Wade. The heartbeat law that was um, passed in Georgia and the law that is being passed in Alabama right now, I don't know if it was, are very serious and naked, not even hidden attempts to really get rid of Roe v. Wade. And people are very serious about this. And if you don't think the people who want to do this are serious, then, (laughs) I mean, this is a waking up moment. And it goes back to Mitch McConnell screwing over Obama with his Supreme Court pick and not letting Merrick Garland get on that Supreme Court. And believe me, the Republicans were not kidding around with that, or the conservatives, I should say, not even Republicans. They were not kidding around. And one of the reasons why they support Trump with all of their being, as flawed a person and even candidate as he was, for a lot of people, and this is where we're keeping 100, is for that Supreme Court pick. It really comes down to that. And the issue on the Supreme Court that they're most concerned about is Roe v. Wade. That's in the crosshairs, all right? I'm saying all this because this is the fight that's coming up, and people need to know that this is coming down the pike. And the reason why it's a concern of me, you know, I'm not some, (laughs) I'm not out there saying, hey, let's have some abortions, you know, that type of thing. But the thing about abortion, guys, let's be honest about it. Let's keep it 100% real. Anytime people want to ban a woman's right to have a safe and legal procedure like abortion, it punishes poor people. It always punishes poor women. Because if you have money, you're going to find a way to get that done, right? But if you don't, and there is no means for you to do this safely and legally, you're fucking screwed. And that's what's coming up. It's it's another assault on poor people and people without means. And then the right always, they're so hypocritical talking about how the left is the one who are the elitists and don't care about regular people or that type of thing. This is this is a direct assault on people without means. Poor people, women of color, all this type of stuff, right? And there's so many, there's so much hypocrisy around it too. And this is something I'd actually like to have in the pod. I want to have a guest where we can really go at this issue. But I'll just give you a couple of my thoughts about this in terms of the hypocrisy. Because some of it is um Philosophical, I guess, you know, some of it is using people's arguments against them or whatever. And some of it is just having a real conversation about it. I don't know why this country can't have a real adult conversation about abortion. I mean, a serious one. And stop trying to say like abortion is murder and making those comparisons. Abortion is abortion. That's why we have words. That's why we make distinctions, right? When a baby is 
a human being is forming in the womb, that is a nascent human being. We have never said that someone's life is measured from the point of conception to death or whatever. We've always measured life from birth to death, from first breath to last breath. It is disingenuous to have a charge of murder, which is what people are saying, to, you know, a being that we haven't declared to be born yet. That is a different category, and it should be treated as such. And I'll give you an example of of where the right is hypocritical in this. In the right stance against gay marriage, they use the argument that for thousands of years, there's been a definition of marriage between a man and a woman. This has been something that's been the case for thousands and thousands of years. Why would we want to change that? Well, that's the case in with abortion. Since the beginning of recorded time, we have measured a person's existence on this earth from birth to death. We celebrate birthdays, not conception days, with the possible exception of the Virgin Mary and there's the Immaculate Conception. Shout out to my Catholics. <laughs> right? That's the only one. That is the only person ever who's, you know, celebrates their conception. Everybody else, it's your birth. That is when you legally become a person. We have a birthright citizenship bill here, um, provision here in this country. You become a citizen on your birth, not on your conception. On your tombstone, it is B to D, not C to D. Just be fucking real about this. Stop making shit up. Now, that's not to say that abortion is not like a simple matter. It's, it's, it is a very complicated matter, and it's a very emotional. Yes, there are moral quandaries with at what point in the development of this person is it safe to have an abortion. Uh, people feel like it's morally better to do it earlier than later. I understand all those. Those are legitimate questions and legitimate issues about abortion. But it is not the same as murder. And if you really do believe that, if you really do believe it's murder, then why does this bill punish the doctors who are performing abortions and not the women? Because the women are making the call, right? They're the Don who's putting out the hit on the baby, right? Why are you not punishing the Don? If you really believe, if you really honestly believe, and I'm going to take you at your word that this is, this is an act of murder, that if you kill, if you have an abortion, like you're, you first find out you're pregnant in six weeks, right? And you have an abortion, and you're saying that that is murder, and you firmly believe that, you believe it from a religious point of view, you believe it from a biological point of view, then why the fuck are you not punishing the woman? Tell me why. Give me good reasons for that. And if you qualified for any reason, <laughs> and no matter what you say, you are being hypocritical. You don't really believe it's murder. You're punishing the doctor and not the woman. There's got to be another reason. Are you afraid politically of being attacked for it? I wonder why you would be afraid of that. Because it's an untenable position. If you really believe that, then you have to keep it 100% real. Otherwise, you don't believe that. So you have to give that argument up. Okay, I'm getting too upset right now. <laughs> this really upsets me. But there are other issues on that that, uh, that I want to get to, but I'm going to save for... Um, another session, because this is winding me up too much. But there's a lot of inconsistency in this, but I want people to know that this is a shot directly at Roe v. Wade, because what people, what they expect to have happen is people, of course, will will protest this. There will be, you know, a lawsuit brought against it. It'll go up to the Supreme Court with the Supreme Court majority 
guess what's in the crosshairs for Roe v. Wade? All right? That's the fight. I'm just telling you right now, and we know who's going to be hurt. Poor women. Congratulations. Congratulations, conservatives. <laughs> You're doing your job. <laughs> All right. So, well, we have a good show coming up uh, with Michael Lewis, Against the Rose. We'll be right back. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Larry. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. And as applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Larry. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-A-R-R-Y. ZipRecruiter.com slash Larry, you guys. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. All right, welcome back. To Black on the Air with a very special guest. I think this is the first time we've had a prominent guest. Notice I said the word prominent. That's not a shot at you, Bill Simmons. <laughs> prominent guest on twice, Michael Lewis, author of all of my favorites, of course, from the big short to the blind side, and Moneyball, Mr. Michael Lewis. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me back. And now you have, now you're in the podcast business. Is this the first time you're doing a podcast? Yeah, I did. You know, I've done some long-form stuff for This American right. Life over the years. Oh, okay. All right. Going all the way back to when Ira Glass started it. I was sure. when some yeah. of the first, did some of the early shows. Right. But the answer is yes. And so yeah. the answer is also yes, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. It, and and it's it's different from this. I mean, yeah. it isn't me just talking to people. Yeah. It's, it's essentially a book over yeah. seven episodes. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, or it's seven related magazine pieces. Yes. It's very much in the Malcolm Gladwell type of arena, which I think, he, is he producing it? Also, he or he's one of the people. Uh, he and Jacob Weisberg, two friends of mine, started this yeah. company called Pushkin Industries, ah. and I think this is their first product. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's very much in that well-produced type of pod where you get kind of a full meal type of thing. What's scripted? <laughs> the yeah, it's a different. It's a scripted show. Yeah. Uh, do you feel comfortable in that format, or do you like talking? What do you? You know, um, I am now. Yeah. It, it was. It was an interesting process. It's been a very interesting process. One. It's been. Surprising to me just how big the audience is. Yeah. I mean, the market for these things yeah. is crazy. It's kind of growing, too. It's Pots have been around for a while, but it feels like it's really finding, like, some wind right now. But I will get to three to four times the number of people who would buy a book of mine. A book a book that even my most my biggest selling book. Right. I mean, you get to audience of millions of people. Yeah. That gets you comfortable quickly. Right. Well, let's say the title of it, Against the Rules. It's called right? Against the Rules. And the way you described it, I wrote down what it's doing, the decline of the human referee in life and what that's doing to our idea of fairness. Right. Very interesting. What got you to that idea? That's very provo- I love these type of philosophical provocative ideas. So, you know. how it started there were t- kind of a couple things at once mm-hmm. going on. One was watching my kids' sport lives mm-hmm. and the way the referees and the umpires were treated. <laughs> right, 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 was right. so appalling. Yeah. I mean, that— the, the way they were treating the referees? The way the referees the or umpires were treated by my kids, but also by the parents. Of oh, the, or God, the, I mean, parents it, are the it worst. is it, absolutely brutal. Right. Uh, 
I've had a, a long-standing fascination with why anybody would put themselves in the position of being a kid's yeah. ump or a kid's it's the worst. And my son brought this interest to a boil because he was last year playing on a Japanese Buddhist temple <laughs> basketball team yeah. in a Japanese Buddhist temple league with yeah. Japanese Buddhist referees. Yeah. And he started calling them assholes. I mean, he was like screaming at him, And I'd have to take him aside and say, what are you doing? You know, you can't behave that way. And he'd say, they're all against me. So then I guess you they're Buddhists, <laughs> you know? And, 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 and he had this, thing, and, but it wasn't just him. It, it was kind of like, yeah. there was this reflexive idea that the referee was always out to get you. Yeah. And I didn't understand that. But the other thing is, this goes back to actually the big short, the book I wrote about the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking at the time, this was largely a refereeing crisis, mm -hmm. that it was, it was the financial system had gone unrefereed, unregulated. I was going to say it was kind of a lack of refereeing. A lack of referees. Yeah. And or poor so I just started watching yeah. it, you know, and you, mm -hmm. you, the basic idea of the podcast is almost everywhere you look where there's a human referee mm -hmm. who's not been replaced by technology, he's under assault. The exceptions, wow. the exceptions are when he's bought and paid for by one of the players on the field. So, hmm. and so the, the ratings agencies on Wall Street, Moody's and Standard mm -hmm. & Poor, their job before the financial crisis was to rate the piles of subprime mortgage loans. But they were paid for. They were essentially salaried employees of the Wall Street banks that created the stuff. Mm -hmm. the Wall Street banks paid them for their ratings. And one of the amazing things in the wake of the financial crisis is that those firms weren't busted up or reformed or something. And, yeah. and they weren't because they had a sponsor. The Wall Street banks that continue to want to pay the ref. Uh, CEO pay consultants. There's a referee in the world of CEO pay, which is wildly out of control. Yeah. You know, it's gone from the average CEO going, getting kind of 10 or 15 times what the average worker gets to now getting 400 times what the average worker gets. And in that whole process that's happened over 20 or 30 years, during it, they've installed a referee called a CEO pay consultant who is paid by the company to say, yeah, that's a really good idea to pay the CEO this much money. There's a CEO pay consultant. Yeah, whose job it is basically to rubber stamp the thing. Someone gets paid to say, yeah, you should make $15 million a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if you do it this way, maybe you'll be a little bit luckier and staying off the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But they are there to make everybody feel like this was a, it's a fair thing. Uh -huh. So these people who are in positions of having to m enforce rules and maximize fairness, uh -huh. uh, the ones who are actually doing their jobs, honestly— are under assault. And sports referees are just one example sports of it. Sports referees is fascinating to me. And I love your, the whole uh, rabbit hole that you went down. <laughs> in, 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 I mean, the actual rabbit hole itself is that referee complex in New Jersey, which I would love to see that place. I know it must be fascinating. Well, they, yeah. so the NBA is a really good example yeah. of, of how bizarre the world of refereeing has got. Yeah. Because you got, on the one hand, the NBA having you know, seven or eight years ago, sensed that the referees were under more assault and they're more scrutinized and the fans were being more hostile. And they, well, they were there was that scandal that happened that's true. in the early aughts, too. That, and I think that... There was a, yeah. a referee who was caught yes, gambling on right. games. Yeah. yeah. My and, Lakers got blamed for it. That's why I was salty about it. That's yeah. right. So, so yeah. there, there was that, too. Yeah. A number of things going on. The new commissioner, Adam Silver, comes in and says, we're going to have to up our refereeing game. Uh -huh. And they institute all these reforms and, and introduce all these kind of aids, technical aids for the refs. 
And one of the technical aides is this replay center in Secaucus, New Jersey. Right. They spend $15 million. Crazy. $15 million. And all it does— It's crazy. It's got 100 screens in it. It's like a crazy person's room. Yeah. Because it all 100 screens, and the only thing you can see on the screens— are the NBA basketball arenas. There's a fiber optic cable run from that building to all the arenas in the country. You can't watch TV. You can just watch what's going on on the court from 20 different angles. Like basketball big brother or something. And they're there just to make sure that they can see whether the the shooter's foot was on the three-point line or who touched the ball last before it went out of bounds. They're there to to serve as an aid to the ref on the court. Mm -hmm. But it's just one of the many things that they've given the refs on the court to improve their performance. Mm. And and at the same time, they've gone to much greater lengths to hire people who are fit, people whose eyes eyes are good, people who are good at the job, and they check them every which way. Like, they get their mistakes at the end of the games— they are held accountable by those mistakes. So yeah. all this, you know, they've, they've essentially professionalized this group of people who used to be just an old boys club. I mean, yeah. it was a, there were like five NBA refs 15 years ago from the same <laughs> right, high school right, in right. Philadelphia. But it also kind of undermines, it kind of throws them under the bus at the same time, saying, we agree with everybody that's saying you're shitty. So now we're going <laughs> to, well, we're now going to do this well, they, to make sure that you're not. Well, you what know? Adam Silver, I think what the yeah. commissioner would say is, we have no choice because every mistake is on the jumbo truck. Yeah, and with high-definition television. And with high-definition yeah. television. And then it gets on Twitter, and then and everybody's yeah. upset. And the referees are, you know, Increasingly subjected to think to death threats. They're, I mean, you go to an arena, you go to the. I mean, yeah. you go see a, a NBA game, and how many times do you hear this fans kind of rise up as yeah. one and scream, "Ref, you suck!" <laughs> I mean, it, which is as if he's trying to make a mistake. They're not wrong. So yeah. the, it's a hard thing to do, referee basketball game. Yeah, uh, right. Moves very fast. Absolutely. Bison, right. There's a lot of subjectivity. There is no way these refs have gotten anything but more accurate. They have all this help. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But at the same time, people hate them more and more and think they're to blame for their problems more and more. That's the puzzle. Is yeah. Why is it at the same time all these effort is being made to make them better and everybody thinks they're worse? Because there's a couple of things going on here. There's the, yeah, you're going to get mad at a call that doesn't go your way. Obvious human nature, that makes sense. But then there's a different kind of hatred going on that is being spewed at the refs that has a little more bile in it than seems necessary. As and, if the ref is intentionally trying to screw you. And, and the way that it comes from the players would shock, I think, a lot of people. You know, the actual language that they use. Kobe Bryant got in trouble, I remember, a few years ago by using some very inappropriate, politically incorrect language. I'm not going to repeat here because that's been, you know. Are we allowed to say well, I I just don't want to say what he said, you know. Well, I mean, Draymond Green yeah, called no, the female ref a fucking bitch. It, absolutely, which is horrible, you know. Uh, and, you know and, the, and how that didn't get out, I have no idea. I mean, the refs getting pushed, refs getting mocked yeah. by the players, Steph Curry throwing mouth, his mouth guard at refs. And they're yelling in their faces and, yes. and everything, too, and, and spitting and everything. And the question is, what's going on there? Why yeah. are the players—and the, the NBA is very aware of this. Yeah. Why are the players treating the refs more and more badly? Yeah. And here's the theory— the theory is that if you look at it, it's mainly the star players. The worst behaved players are the star players. So the people beginning paid the most and and who get the best treatment because they also get the the benefit of the calls more than the than the other players are complaining the most. One of the arguments I'm making in the f- first episode is the introduction of accuracy infuriates the stars because th- if the refs are more objective, mm-hmm. 
they're less likely to just give the star the call. Wow, and, that's And that's the problem. It, Favoritism it, goes it, it, away. So it, this didn't actually make mm-hmm. it into the episode, but what was at the back of my mind was in baseball, you know, 10, 12 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, they started to introduce these pitch track machines into major league ballparks where mm-hmm. that's the box you see on the screen right. around the strike zone. Mm-hmm. It accurately measures and displays the strike zone. So right. you can now see on television every time the umpire is wrong. That's right. And the umpires, the major league baseball train, instead of, they could have just gotten rid of the home plate umpires, but they didn't do, want to do that <laughs> yes. for whatever reason. Right. And so they train the umpires against that machine. So mm-hmm. you're measured at the end, you're told you missed four pitches and, and this is where they were. You're not seeing the outside corner, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Kurt Schilling, uh, not long after the pitch track machine started to really affect the umpire's calls, meaning the umpire's calls were getting more and more accurate. Right. Kurt Schilling came out of a game early because he hadn't done well. Pitcher for He was pitching for the Diamondbacks at the time, I think. Right. Got a baseball bat, found the pitch track machine, and destroyed it. And he said it was ruining the game. Wow. Now, what's going on there? Wow. What's going on there is Kurt Schilling historically has been able to work the umpire three, four, five inches off the plate. Yes. You know, and, and get the call because right. he's Kurt Schilling because he's the star. Right. And now he can't get it in the same way and he's angry. And so I think part of the story in sports and in basketball is what happens when you actually try to remove the privilege of people who have an unfair advantage. Yeah. It's sort of like what would happen in American politics if you actually tried to tax the rich. Uh, <laughs> and they actually paid those taxes. And they actually paid those yes. taxes. What would actually what happen? Would actually, this is what you'd see. You'd wow. see you, you would see that kind of response. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is some of the uh, behavior that you kind of expose. And uh, I think you kind of touched on a little bit. But, you know, I always thought about these things, um, how there, there's implicit bias in refereeing, too, you know, that can— that's been played out like we were talking about with, you know, mostly black players versus <laughs> mostly white players. So, so that's and how many fouls are called, well, so you know, which is, I think has to do with black male aggression. Huh. Completely. It's the reason why if basketball players get into a fight, they're thugs. But when hockey players knock each other's teeth out, every night, <laughs> it's like, oh, they're just guys having fun. They're just, you know, they're passionate, you know. It's like, well, why are these guys thugs over here? And and they don't even, by the way, they don't even have to punch. All they have to do is push. And you see people going crazy trying to pull them apart like they're going to pull out guns all of a sudden. And it's going to be Almost boys everything that happens on a basketball court is a pretend fight. It's crazy. It's like, I, I could have get it. I yes, could have killed him. Yes, I was exactly. going to hit him, but they held me back. Exactly. But this. <laughs> Whole thinking that we got to pull these black people apart before yeah. the whole place, before there's a race riot in this place, you know. And in hockey, it's like, well, let's just let them fight it out. In hockey, they even let them fight; they just watch them until they're done. You're, yeah, they're gonna tire themselves out after a while. Let's just <laughs> let's just let them have that. You know, it's crazy. How's that not biased? Well, so this feeds into the story, in that there there were some studies done, you know, four, five, six years ago of NBA refs, mm-hmm. who have got to be among the most scrutinized workforce on the planet. Yeah. But, but one and by— now a, NFL, too. One by yeah. an economist named Justin Wolfers, who did show there was racial bias in refereeing, and other is showing that, mm-hmm. that um, a lot of home court advantage yes. in basketball was the result of referees giving the home team the call. Which right. you would naturally do if you're a ref because there are 15,000 people ready to chop your head off. That if, feels like human nature to me. And right. the, as a consequence, in part, of the refs being informed of their racial bias and of the fact they give the home team the call and being held to a higher standard of accuracy, the racial bias and the home court advantage has, large, has mostly gone away. 
Um, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, when you go back and look, try to find it and study it, it's not there anymore. Mm. So it's interesting. You can see signs of the improvement of the ref, yeah. but nobody's saying, God, these guys are getting so good. I you know, know that's and, so and, true. And, no, and nobody says, it's, everybody. The technology is getting good, but not the ref. It doesn't yeah. stand a reason that if, mm-hmm. if the, war, the Warriors are playing the Rockets right now, uh-huh. if the Warriors are furious because the Rockets got the calls and they blame the refs for what just happened, wouldn't you think the Rockets would be there saying, wow, we're so grateful the refs gave us the calls? Yeah. But that is no, that's Never not what happens. happens. Like Never that. happens. It's yeah. 100% negative. It's just whoever's angry is looking for someone to blame. Yeah. And it's very convenient. You've got these very highly paid coaches and these very highly paid players. And if you can go to press conference afterwards mm-hmm. and blame what just happened— on this guy who's making, who's doing his best to, you know, enforce the rules and doing his best to be objective and say that's why we lost, then people aren't talking about what you did. Yeah. The mistakes you made, the 23-point shots you jacked up that didn't didn't go in. Uh, so uh, I, I think I they're convenient. I think they're convenient, especially for people in a position of authority. Yeah, and I'm trying to pinpoint where all this extra anger comes from, you know, because as soon as you start talking about it, you know, it's like, Right in your face because they're too too upset. Steve Kerr, in fact, in an interview yesterday, um, was talking about how he, you know, has said things to the refs and his kids have seen his lips move. He said, you motherfucker. <laughs> That's what he said. And his lips like, Daddy, why are you doing that? He says, I know I shouldn't, but something comes over me. He says, something comes over so me. So that's from our podcast. Yeah. They bought, they, oh, took, that's that right. clip. Yeah, they yeah. took that clip and yeah. used it on ESPN. Yeah. Uh, and he said, he, Oh, because I saw it on ESPN. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, they they yeah, asked right. to be able to use it. They were trying to, but, and, and I was saying to him, I said, Look, my son, the reason my son behaves the way he does with these Japanese Buddhist refs yeah. is he thinks he's Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. <laughs> and he sees what they do. Right. You know, he sees Clay Thompson or Steph Curry pound his chest and point to the sky after he hits a three-point shot. Right. He has no idea why they're doing it. He doesn't believe in God, but he still does it. And he thinks that's how you behave towards a ref. And I said, you know, I said to Kerr, I said, your players are like the most fabulous people. I'm so glad that my son is emulating your players. Yeah. With, with one exception. The way they treat the refs and the way you treat the refs, why? You know, and he, he couldn't really explain it. He said it just something comes over me. And I think the players all kind of the same way. It'd be interesting. I, you know, the players aren't really allowed to talk about the refs. They get, if I were they get to, fined, right? They get yeah. fined. So I couldn't interview Curry right. without putting him in harm's way. Yeah. But they, and Harden just got in trouble for saying that they weren't calling the calls on him when he was shooting these three-pointers. And he has, Harden has, James Harden, for all you non-basketball people. But James Harden has come up with a move of the way that he shoots three-pointers where he's perfected shifting his body over with that kind of hop step and it almost makes you jump into him, but he also kicks his feet out at the same time. No. So he causes fouls as much as he's fouled. So, so this is, and a, he's mad because they don't call the fouls that he causes. So think about this: you've yes. got you've got these highly gifted athletes spending some part of their time in the practice gym trying to figure out how to trick the refs. Yeah, and then they're yes, then exactly. they're angry. Yes, and, <laughs> when they when don't the ref- trick them properly, yeah. when they don't pull it off. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're, this is gone. It's it's a kind of madness. Yeah. And very angry. Like, not just, all right, I didn't trick you. Oh, no. Outraged. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely outraged. Yeah. In the same way a rich person would be if you taxed him properly and actually collected the taxes. I have a friend who's who winds up in this first, and we're talking mainly about this first episode, mm-hmm. but who winds up in this first episode, who's a psychologist at Cal at Berkeley. His mm-hmm. name is Dacker Keltner, who is, he studies emotion, but he did do a bunch of studies trying to examine the effects of privilege on people's behavior. Yeah. And he did this great thing where he 
he stations people at four-way stop signs mm-hmm. and he kind of hiding in bushes. And he would classify the cars at the four-way stop sign <laughs> one to five by how nice they were. So right. like the brand new BMW Coupe was a one and like the Pinto was a five to judge how likely they were to cheat at the four-way stop. Yeah. And the richer the car, the more likely the driver was going to like run it or, t- or go ahead Amazing. of his turn. And, yeah. and you know, over and over, there are, all these, there are studies. And you see in life, privilege does not bring out the best in people. Privilege makes you an asshole. You have to guard against being an asshole. That's totally Privilege right. and elitism. And if yeah. you think about what's going on in a basketball court, yeah. Um, all right, yeah, Michael Jordan was a big deal. Larry Bird was a yeah. big deal. But LeBron James might be a billionaire, yeah. right? And James Harden has a $200 million shoe contract. These people, the elites in the NBA, are so far removed from yeah. ordinary life, nobody tells them no. Nobody right. nobody checks their behavior. Yeah. They walk onto a basketball court, and the referee's going to tell them they walked. They're outraged. How do those people find referees in their life, then? Like, where did the referee—because do we all need referees in our life? Yes, don't we? I would hope so. Like, where do you— like what somebody exa- has to make a call sometimes well, as opposed to is we— your, Is your spouse right, often exa- plays right. that role or your kids play that role. Right. Someone who can speak with you honestly about your behavior. So yeah. there are those checks. But if you are a billionaire, um, you know, centimillionaire basketball star and you, the world revolves around you, or if you're like this gazillionaire CEO or hedge fund manager and the mm-hmm. world revolves around you, you have a very, I mean, nobody wants to be refereed. Mm-hmm. So you have, a, you have an ability to evade the, your referees. I, yeah. I mean, to move from episode one to episode two, one of the things that's interesting is even in places where it is really obvious a referee is necessary and everyone would agree that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It's extremely hard to set it up right now. Yeah. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yes, era, I love this episode. You talk about the seven-minute rule or something. In yeah, there. So it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's the seven-minute rule is a company called Navient, who's one of the firms that manages your student loan if you have a student loan. Right. And services it. You call them to find out what you need to do to pay it off or what you mm-hmm. owe or what happens if you can't pay, all the rest. And there are many ways Navient could actually help the people who are, right. who are in trouble these ways. Yes. But Navient gets paid by how many people it services how quickly. It gets paid kind of fees per, per borrower. So it's, they don't want you to pay it all off, yeah. one. That's one incentive. Two, they don't want to spend a lot of time, waste a lot of time talking to you. So they had a rule in their call centers that to get off the phone with whoever called in within seven minutes. And they, they timed your calls. Wow. And people were promoted who were able to, like, get it under three minutes. So – that became one of the reasons, clearly, and we have a case study in this in one of the in the in the episode, why there were a whole group of people, people who taken out student loans and then gone into public service, uh-huh. firefighters, police officers, public school teachers, right. whatever. Congress created an uh, an out for them that if you if you paid your made your loan payments for seven years or ten years, I can't remember what it was, mm-hmm. the loan was forgiven. Yeah, I didn't even know about this. And, uh, well, well, yeah. nobody else does either because Navient doesn't want you to know about right, it. Right, it wasn't and, publicized. And, and, well. and they made yeah. it. We have this woman this, in the middle of the show. Her name is Katie Highland, who mm-hmm. whose life has been essentially made miserable for a decade. She's a public school teacher mm-hmm. with little kids uh, because Navient made it extremely difficult for her to take advantage of the program that should have been easy for her to take advantage of. And they have, I mean, it's, I don't know how many. 
ten, hundreds of thousands of people had student loans and then went into public service, but something like 36,000 people have tried to apply to this program, and only 98 have gotten in. 98 Wait, people. Please say that again. <laughs> yes, yes. 36,000 people. 36,000. Yes. Our character in our episode didn't even get as far as applying because they made it so difficult. 98. 98. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. What's, so, so, what's sad so, about that, your character, just in a second, she, was, she seems so reasonable. She, like the exact type of person who should be rewarded for this type of thing. You and know? now she's telling her kids, don't become a teacher. Wow. And she's grinding her teeth at night, and she's had teeth pulled now. Yeah. And she doesn't want to smile because she doesn't have teeth. And it's an extraordinary story. And, 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 talk, and talk about the nature of her obstacle with this, because they sound like the anti-referee. Yeah. Well, yeah. so the referee in this case— was created on the back end of the financial crisis. It should be the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Got it. There to referee this now vast interaction between finance, Wall Street firms right. of various sorts, of whom of which Navient is one, and ordinary Americans mm-hmm. who have trouble navigating finance. Generally, it's a complicated subject. Very complicated. Easily abused. Mm-hmm. And, and people are easily taken advantage of. In right? this space. Right. They make lots of mistakes that lead to absolute catastrophe in their lives. Mm-hmm. They take out loans they shouldn't take out. They don't pay credit. They should pay off their credit card debt, and, and instead they interest. And like they get in these vicious cycles. Absolutely, we have a consumer products agency that vets consumer products that makes sure that if if you know your refrigerator explodes, mm-hmm. that nobody's allowed to sell right. that refrigerator anymore. Yes, makes sense. Yeah, it <laughs> yes, makes sense, yes. right? But we, but, and Elizabeth Warren made the case, and everybody understood it at the back end of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. That look how many people got themselves into a fix because they were basically they they didn't know what they were getting into when they got into a mortgage. It wasn't true in every case, but sure. a lot of people were abused by yeah. the complexity of finance. And as you so, point out in one of your brilliant books, Big Short, and is it was the predatory nature of looking for those vulnerable people that, uh, you know, because they were uh, packaging these loans and that kind of thing right at that time. Like people were— There is a tendency in consumer finance for the companies to view the consumer not as a customer but as the crop. Yes. And and for for not to pay too close attention to the actual welfare of that human being. Mm -hmm. And this is a wonderful case study mm. where you have a student loan servicer right. who's making life extremely difficult for the people who have student loans whose lives are already hard enough. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly a case that this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as a referee, should be stepping into the middle of. Absolutely. And the head of the student loan division at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, has stepped away from his job in the last six or eight months because Trump the Trump people said, basically, you're not allowed to do your job. Uh, we, we're trying to basically dismantle this place. Mm. So here's a referee everybody was in support of when, when it was created after the financial crisis. That, and all signs were it was doing a great job. It returned something like $12 billion to consumers. Mm-hmm. That now that, you know, we're not in the, hot, in the hot moment of the financial crisis and nobody's paying attention, right. the superstars of finance, the big Wall Street firms, they don't want to be refereed, have found ways to undermine Mm-hmm. Uh, as they always do. As they will. Right. right. That's kind of their job. Yeah. Really. And so uh, it's just – so one of the th- I think one of the themes of the show is how hard it is to establish a referee in an unequal space, in mm-hmm. a place where there's lots of – radical inequality. Because you've got a powerful player and an, a powerless yeah. player. You've got, you know, Citibank and 
some poor public school teacher, mm-hmm. and that powerful person does not want someone in the middle deciding what's fair or what the rules are. Yeah. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do. And you started by talking about going through a fraud situation. I went through the same thing. and Did you? I, I, the same thing happened to me where they said, well, you have to call the police. I'm like, but I have the information on this person. So tell me what happened to you. Well, this happened years ago. Somebody opened up like a Chevron card in my name and, uh, you know, didn't pay it or whatever, and I get all this, you know— People coming at me, I'm like, I never opened a Chevron card in Oakland, you know. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, and uh, and then they had done some other things and had some stuff. Oh, there were two things. One was the Chevron card. The other was somebody had something delivered to an address. Like, and I actually saw the address, you know, and I'm telling the credit card companies that— As Larry Wilmore. Yes, and I'm like— Guys, here's the address. You can go get these people. <laughs> you know, like this was, this was actually when I was talking to the police because the police were very uninterested when I was talking to them. I called them on the phone. Both the credit card company and the police, very uninterested. Sorry, not much we can do about it, you know, but thanks for reporting. You know, credit card company, they'll just, you know, give you another card or close it or whatever. But it's on your credit report. Exactly. Once it goes, once it's, All in, of a sudden, once it's in that the, collection The phase. name of Larry Wilmore is blackened. <laughs> Yes, and you, you can't. Know, you you're unwelcome in any in terrible. any in any credit transaction. And I was just starting out at that time, you know, just getting things, getting my credit good and established, you know. But I was so frustrated to come up against this wall of, well, whatever. And like, sorry, it happens. Like, there's sorry, Larry. There's way too many more important things going on than somebody who got a couple of packages delivered to them. At, you know, and there's nothing you can do about it. There was nothing I could do about it except I canceled that card. That was the most I could do. But right. like you said, it was too late at that point, and nobody cared. You See, know? What, I, what I don't get is this. Yeah. So I, I was so I share your frustration. I was harassed by Citigroup every morning for for well, maybe that's, that's maybe surprising a, maybe to me, a yeah. year for fifteen thousand dollars in a credit card debt when no one in our family, as far as I know, no ancestor of mine has ever done anything with Citibank, but they claim that I'd taken out this credit card. Yeah. And and when I looked into it, some guy listing an address in Miami that didn't exist. So all I had to do was Google and realize yes. it was a fraud. Do a little work. Do people. a little work. Yes. You're, you're lending you did money. all this work to find me. That's right. <laughs> yes. took out, you spent 15 grand with a Citigroup card that yeah. I had nothing to do with, and all of a sudden it's my problem? Like, yeah. like, why is it my problem? Why is it not Citibank's problem? Right. You were so dumb to hand out a card Thank you. to someone who you shouldn't have given a card to, and now you're going to put it on my we credit. We had nothing to do with it. And right. then the whole system is set up so that Citigroup is infuriated that I don't have, I'm not going to give them back $15,000, right. and I finally just start hanging up on them, that they report my Whatever it is, my my unwillingness to pay them, yeah, to 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 these companies that are credit reporting companies, Experian and so on and so forth, that whose sole job is to accumulate essentially all the bad things that people have to say about you or anybody who pretended to be you. They didn't believe your story. No. And then pass it along to everybody else. So all of a sudden, I'm getting a letter from American Express saying, "Sorry, your card's not going to be useful Uh. anymore." And if if you back away from that, I mean, it's that slander. Like, yes. I mean, it, I didn't do a thing. I didn't do a thing. Isn't it their problem? Not that they have been able, they've written into law, actually. It's like corporate bullying or something. I, I thought you could, you could sue mm-hmm. Experian for just repeating bad things about you that weren't true. But it turns out somewhere in the innards of financial 
regulation, they wrote in that they are immune to you, that you can't sue them for libel or slander. Um, mm. So, so th- th- my story is a comic story because I don't need to borrow money. But it was a counterpoint to this poor public school teacher's story, which is a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. most of these stories end up being tragedies. Right, absolutely. Because they're already buried in debt from those loans. And they got those loans to do, I think, a very honorable job as a teacher. You're not killing it, you know, in the financial world for most, you know, for most teachers, especially if they're teaching in primary school or that type of thing. And then I had to go mm-hmm. down. They told me I had to go down to the Berkeley Police Station and talk to an officer and file an yes. identity theft. And I, yeah. and, and I tried to do an alignment said, where did the crime occur? And that's, a, that's an interesting question. Like, if someone pretended to be you, and you don't know where they were, but they, they, and they pretended to be an address in Miami, but the credit card's issued out of South Dakota— where does the I had to go down and we had to sort out sort of what are we going to put on this form? Uh-huh. Where, where does this crime occur? I don't know. So who's the referee in this? Like supposed? Well, it should be the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is exactly the sort of thing they should step in to right. and say we're going to file a class action suit against against the the credit reporting agencies mm-hmm. and against any bank that spreads bad information about people that had nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where it should have stopped. Citigroup should be punished for, for, um, uh, slander, slander, yeah. right. For, for telling everybody else that I borrowed $15,000 from them that I didn't borrow. I think, mm-hmm. right. I mean, it's, if you wonder how these places make actually profit. Citigroup doesn't make a lot, but, but you wonder just how much they must overcharge yeah. on everything if they're running their business that stupidly. That's why that type is so small, you know. <laughs> but that's right. The credit yeah. the, the credit cards used to come at a one it was a one page form and it was comprehensible. Mm-hmm. Now there's twenty seven pages of fine print. It's ridiculous, yeah. Uh, uh, and anyway, so there is the ref this the story of episode two is just it is such an obvious space, consumer finance, to insert a referee. We did only only because the financial crisis was such an outrageous moment. Mm-hmm. But the moment the attention's off the problem, the referee gets undermined by the, by the stars on the court. Right, by all the interests. And, and sometimes there's confusion to me, it seems like, between referee and cop. Like, IRS is cop, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> They're not really referee. Right. You would think the IRS could be a great referee, maybe. Is, right. But they're really just cop, you know, which is different than referee, I guess, you know. Cop and referee are uh, cousins. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right, right. A little bit. I mean, you're enforcing rules. But you would hope the cop would check the referee and not just check us all the time. Right. You know, in whatever situation. Like, the most problematic referee, which was one of the more fascinating ones, was the world of art, the Leonardo. Yeah. Um, Talk about that one, because that's—what's fascinating to me about that episode, um, Michael, is is it's one of the—like— there are only a few experts that really can discern at a certain point what some of these things are, right? You know, and so— that So leaves, they would have you believe. Yes, correct. Yes, which is great, yeah. which leaves the majority of us out in the cold and having to trust so few people. Right. The leverage is so uh, is so unfair in that world, right? It's inter- it's an interesting situation. Yeah. So the episode is about 
referees who are doing well. And the mm-hmm. point of, of the episode is the ones who are doing well are usually being paid by one side. And by doing well, you mean they're getting rewarded they're, they're happy, nobody's yelling at them. They're flourishing. Yes. They're making a lot of money. Right. They're, they're comfortable referees. But they're not necessarily doing the right thing. Well, if you see a comfortable <laughs> referee, you probably have a problem. Well, and, and, that's and the, great. And the yeah. flip side is if you see a referee being yelled at, you probably have someone who's probably just trying to do his job. Perfect. Uh, that's, right. that's, that's a, that's perfect. a move through life with that in your head. Yes. So if you see a referee being yelled that step up and think about whether you need to defend him. Right. Uh, but but in the art world, in this particular case, there's this painting that is called the Salvador Mundi, which mm-hmm. is by by whoever. No one knows who it's by. Okay. Um, it gets found uh, in a auction in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. It had been hanging in a house down the street from where I grew up in New Orleans mm-hmm. for 40 years. Wow. And there's very little paint on it. Uh, what paint there is is not particularly promising. I mean, there was hardly anything left I mean, it was, on the it was really damaged, yes. Really? Yes. Wow. And it was bought for, I don't know, $1,000 at the auction by a New York dealer who then proceeds to establish it, it as a Leonardo. Okay. Uh, a series of steps are required, but it gets, it gets, it gets um, restored. And what year does this start? That, this that all first start- person who says— this is a Leonardo. Almost like seven or eight years ago. Okay, so it's kind of a recent oh, yeah. thing yeah, of yeah. claiming it to be that. Yeah. And before and, that, what was it thought it, of as? Uh, no one had any idea. Okay, it was like, oh, so, this so, is interesting. So, so to the extent it's been, been, they've been able to connect it to historical records, mm-hmm. um, it was variously identified as maybe, if it's the right painting, as like follower of Leonardo, mm-hmm. uh, school of Leonardo, late a later copy of, a, but there's no record of Leonardo having painted this subject. Yeah. And Leonardo didn't paint a whole lot, and what he did paint usually got a lot of attention. So mm-hmm. it's a little odd that there wasn't some concrete record of oh he painted this. There's no provenance at all. N- so. And mm-hmm. so there's so it's the situation where the referee has maximum power because. There was there's no concrete evidence of of the mm-hmm. thing having so it's a judgment right. call it's right. a judgment call we don't have video right. to go to and, right. and, right. and it, it, curiously when they were restoring it they didn't do the sort of tests you might do to establish whether even like them the paint that was on there was from the 16th century uh-huh. you know they didn't Aging do it, it wasn't uh-huh. you know Science has walked into the art world and solved some of these problems by being able to identify fraud. I was going to say, it seems only like some s- of them, only some of them. It seems like science. Uh, yeah, wow. And, but, and, but the what happens is the when they gussy this painting after they've gussied this painting up, uh-huh. and they start to kind of build a, essentially a, a friend circle for it, uh, showing it selectively to people who might say it's a Leonardo with authority, uh-huh. uh, they find the ones who are willing to say, maybe it's Leonardo. So you find and, the people and, who are going to play and, the and game. They, and they play those mm. opinions up, and they don't show it to people who are make much of the people who say, eh, not really. Um, but the kind of things they do to the picture when they get it, I mean, when they, the picture they find, uh, Leonardo has a beard. They take the beard off. <laughs> uh, they, 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 I mean, they, they do, mm-hmm. and they make it look much more like uh, Leonardo would have 
painted it. Uh-huh. So the, is it a depiction of Jesus? It is. Okay. It's, it's a picture. Right. It's the, Jesus it's a, it's is a savior a gay of the Jesus world. Shaved, it's, yeah. it's 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 Jesus. <laughs> it's a it's a, a torso and headshot of Jesus holding a globe, uh, right. and um, a crystal orb. Very bizarre. And um, and there are a whole bunch of you know you, there are arguments why. Leonardo really wouldn't have painted such a thing. Uh, but never mind that. The big mm-hmm. point is nobody knows like if Leonardo had anything to do with this or the, any of the strokes on the or any of the brush strokes that were by Leonardo. But by the time it gets to Christie's and to be auctioned uh, two years ago, it's not only a Leonardo, it's the last Leonardo. Wow. It's the last Leonardo you'll ever be able to buy. And the thing goes for $450 million to what? a Saudi prince. Um, now, the it's the punchline $1, is— $1,000 right. to $450 million in the span of seven years. Yes. That's and, crazy. Well, so you can see what the pressures are on the referee. Mm-hmm. Any referee who says, no, that's Leonardo, that's not Leonardo— all of a sudden, well, it's a thousand dollar painting. But if you can, if you're willing to say it is, I mean, no matter, even if you're saying it sincerely, mm-hmm. the, the unconscious, the vibes you're getting, if you can create four hundred fifty million dollars out of thin air, that's you're gonna you're gonna feel a certain pressure to go that way. So, what is the reward that those people get? It's they don't get any of the money. No, Do they get so the prestige? In is this, that what it is? So, gen, more generally, uh-huh. oftentimes. The so-called experts mm-hmm. are paid for their opinions. Oh, okay. So, and who's going to who's going to be brought in and pay be paid for his opinion? Someone who is generally skeptical, or someone who is generally helpful. So, uh, I watched this because I worked at an old master painting art dealer uh-huh. right when I got out of college called Wildenstein, mm-hmm. and um, there were go-to experts who everybody wanted to bring in because they had a sense that they'll be friendlier. And they made quite good livings. But but in this case, with the Salvador Mundi, it's unclear if anybody was paid directly for their opinion. One person cl- says he wasn't. But he got to write a book about it. He got invited to the shows. He, he's became more mm-hmm. famous because of it. There, there are a lot of in, the, the incentives, all the incentives are to go along for the ride. Mm-hmm. In this case, it, the plot thickens because the thing is sold two years ago and it was meant to go up in the new Louvre in Abu Dhabi. Mm. And instead, the paintings vanished. And the, you call the Abu Dhabi Louvre and they don't know, they say, we don't know when it's coming. It was supposed to be up a year, I think a year ago. Uh, and it's just, apparently, I'm told it's never even left Europe. It's not gone down there. Mm-hmm. There's a rumor that the actual Louvre in France, in Paris, uh, has misgivings about calling this thing a Leonardo and putting it on a wall mm-hmm. of a museum called the Louvre. You think? But but it's— I mean, they I mean, who do knows have the Mona Lisa. Who knows there. what's going on? But the, 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 it's the broader point is, uh-huh. it's not a bad—you know, a, one kind of referee who seems to be doing quite well are these, these art connoisseurs. Yeah. And, um, and all the—essentially, essentially the, there's no voice mm-hmm. for— um, uh, the constituency that would say, no, no, it's not a Leonardo. Yeah. And there's a huge amount of money and influence and prestige and power on the side of, yes, it's a Leonardo. Um, so you've got this imbalance. You've got this, a similar sort of situation you have with the credit rating agencies. Uh-huh. If you say the subprime mortgages are riskless, you're likely to get paid more by Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Citigroup yeah. than if you say, well, I don't know about this stuff. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this authentication role, um, you, you're likely to be more comfortable and better paid and all the rest mm-hmm. if you are friendly to one side. And that's really? the story of that podcast. I wonder, do you think like, when you look at a place like Twitter, it feels like Twitter operates without a referee, mm-hmm. you know, and, because— And Facebook. Yeah, but Twitter, so much because things are weaponized in Twitter and consequences happen, mm-hmm. and there's no referee to step in. Like, people have lost careers off because of Twitter and yes. that sort of thing. Yep. Like, Twitter fires happen real fast, and it affects people's lives, yep. you know? like Have it, you ever been on the receiving end of one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you ever have a show, that's just going to happen. What's you know? the worst thing that happens has happened to you on Twitter? Um, well, I talked about this on my pod was, um, well, it didn't, it kind of had, I think it started on Twitter, but it was the internet when the kid, uh, um, Otto Warmbier, was, uh, came home and, you know, he he was killed and everything From by Korea. North Korea. Yeah. And on our show a year and a half earlier, you know, we had mocked the fact that someone would steal a flag in North Korea and not know the consequences, you know, and it was more about just the American attitude of, of doing that and not knowing where you are. I felt the same way about the kids who stole sunglasses in China, you know. The UCLA and, basketball players. Yes, exactly. So my attitude was always to, to mock us for doing that, you know. So, you know, I mocked I mocked that situation and everything, but, you know, once the kid is dead, it looks horrible. It was really bad, you know, and I really regretted doing it now that that's happened because the family's lost their son. You know, there's no—I would never try to justify it once that's happened and everything. It was a terrible thing that that country did and terrible loss for that family. So, you know, I felt we're bad about it, but somebody found the clip or whatever, and it was weaponized for like a whole week. And it was like, how could Larry Wilmore say this about Otto Warmbier? And they played it as if I had said it after. Exactly. Like when he died. from context. Exactly. And so Fox for a whole day ran it on their entire program and was showing this clip and saying how evil Larry Wilmore is (laughs) and everything. And I saw this thing and all I could do was put my hands up. And I I talked about it on Twitter and I was very emotional about it. I said, look, because I felt really bad for the family. I have a son, you know, I don't. If you lose your child, that's terrible. I felt bad that we did make fun of him, you know, at the time, you know. But at the time, it was different context. It wasn't, you know, the same thing. It wasn't thing. the death penalty. I would never dance in someone's grave. I would never. What kind of a monster would I have to be to dance in someone's grave, you know? Right. But that's how it was being portrayed, as me dancing in someone's grave, you know. So I saw how that could happen. And I wasn't. Even, I didn't even have a show at that point, too. But, you know, in smaller ways, it's happened where people just accuse you of of having points of view that they don't like. And then I'm like, whatever, you know. So there you go. Well, um, your situation. And there's no referee in my case. There's right. nothing I there's can nothing, do about nothing it. There's nothing you can do about nothing. it. Nothing. Except for me to use this platform that I had to express. Shout back. Yeah. Yeah, and not even a shot back so much as I wanted it out there. I Honestly, all I wanted to do was express my regret for the family losing their son. I didn't want to defend what I did at all or anything. I didn't even say bad things about the people doing it. That's all I really wanted to do. Because to me, everything else goes by the wayside. When you lose a child like that, nothing else really matters. You know, it really doesn't at that point. And the way in which that poor kid was handled was terrible. It really was, you know. So to me, I was... I'm like, whatever, people, you're so stupid to come after me. You know, look at the president, for Christ's sakes. He's believing, you know, North Korea and thinking that the leader had nothing to do with it and didn't even know about it. And that's coming out of the president's mouth, for Christ's sakes. You know, that to me is a horrible thing. I still can't believe that he did, that he would do something like that. So um, you point out a really important phenomenon, that the 
sort of the public, the space for public conversation mm-hmm. has opened up. Yes. It used to be, no one would have written this about you in the New York Times 20 no. years ago. No one would have paid any attention to it at all. But, but, because it, you read it and it obviously doesn't make sense. Right. This was a year and a half ago, you said? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's right. right. But we've created these unrefereed social spaces. Yeah. And the people who've created the businesses have not accepted the responsibility to referee them. Right. At all. In fact, the maybe the, like the founding principle of Facebook is you're not going to be refereed. Yeah. And this is what you get. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you get this misery. I mean, in a way, it's dramatizing the importance of the ref. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, like, how you fix it. I, I would think with Facebook anyway, one way to fix it would be to actively embrace the referee role and say, you know, in the past, news organizations have taken responsibility for what they print mm-hmm. and have ombudsmen and they have fact checkers and they have all this, that we're going to start doing that job. Right. But they don't really want to do that. It's expensive. Yeah. It gets in the way of their relations with their customers. It's you Even know, his friend, Zuckerberg's friend, who helped start it with them, he was on television today saying Facebook needs to do something drastic. Maybe people need to break it up or, you know, talking about all these things and pretty much saying the same thing. Right. It's interesting to me that these businesses that have flourished, like, in, in the most extraordinary ways, are flourishing because they've been granted the exemption, the an exemption from having to referee a space yes. that needs to be refereed. Exactly, and it's wild, wild west. Right. Everybody brings a gun to the saloon, right? <laughs> you know, right. And there's That's no right. accountability, right? Yeah, and you know, and finally, and thanks so much, um, Michael. It's so I, you're one of those people. Of course, I could talk to you forever. It's so great. No, you couldn't. Um, we were getting to the point where you're about to get bored. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I was, I was remembering what I talked to you the last time. We had so much fun in San Francisco, and your son was actually there. We talked about That's right. the whole Buddhist basketball thing, which was so entertaining. You know. And I was kind of teasing him during the thing, which was fun. That was so much fun. He's such a good kid. Um, the last thing I wanted to bring up was judges, because I think we're at a, a moment here, which is kind of interesting, um, where people, I think, only view judges from a polarized point of view. Like, even the Supreme Court. It's not the Supreme Court. It's the, like, 6-3 court, you know, <laughs> is right. how it's viewed, you know. And there's so much tribalism in terms of, there's less and less willingness to believe that they're neutral authorities. Exactly. They're no longer viewed as referees. They're viewed right. as partisans. Yes. They're, they're bought by one side or the other. That's exactly right. You know, And even in the Kavanaugh hearings, it was interesting to hear him level those charges against the left and kind of reveal himself as, you know, not there's nothing wrong with being on one side or another. But the revelation of it, I found— very fascinating because you never really hear it like that from judges. And granted, he was he was defending himself and he was a little out of sorts or whatever, you know. But to use that type of partisan language as a judge was kind of striking to me. It was because he was mm. encouraging everybody to believe that all judges yeah. are that way. Yeah. That w- they're all essentially partisan hacks. Right. And the truth is that's not who becomes a judge generally. Mm-hmm. Generally, there are people who— they aren't on one side or the other. They're on the side of the law. They're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, and it is true. They're what you call a neutral has, ref they, they or all, something, they, right? It's, it's, it's true mm-hmm. everybody's got their biases. And it's true, that, but but the biases aren't always just political biases. Mm-hmm. Like referees in basketball, judges have been studied now every which way. Right. And people have found all kinds of crazy things they do that have nothing to do with their politics. So um, there was a study. I mean, it's it's been it's been— 
battled over some, but it's, it's still kind of revealing. Judges giving harsher sentences right before lunch yes. than right after lunch. Yeah. Or, but it, now, now, but our judges, um, there's, there's a professor at Cornell named Jeffrey Reklinski right. who's like making a living showing all the weird things that judges do. If you, if you uh, put in a judge's mind just a random large number before the judge has to decide what the financial penalty is uh, to, for, for some, uh-huh. the, the judge will – Will will levy a higher penalty? It's like a magic trick. No, it is, but but it's like people's minds do. Judges are as just as susceptible to cognitive mistakes, the kind of mistakes that everybody makes, as other people. And so, I think of the the view of judges as partisan hacks is as a subset of a general distrust of human judgment. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it just generally, we don't, the whole idea of the Olympian, detached, black-robed, mm-hmm. usually guy, mm-hmm. uh, who's do, doing his best to remain neutral mm-hmm. has been has been abandoned. So, and, and it's been, not by the judges themselves. They still want to think of themselves that way. Right. But they're under assault. And Trump is the ultimate expression of this. I mean, mm-hmm. when he doesn't like a ruling, he calls out the judge by name, and mm-hmm. the judge gets a million emails and credible death threats. Mm. Um, I mean, you've got federal judges that have round-the-clock protection now wow. because of him. So mm-hmm. this is this maps very neatly onto the refereeing situation. Absolutely. Now we need bodyguards for, to and from the NBA arena. Right. And the problem is, whatever you think of— judges, individual judges, or just the the institution of the judge, if you actually remove the independence from the judiciary, if we just kind of cave and say, yeah, we're all going to agree they're just a bunch of hacks. We are not going to respect their authority as neutral authorities. We're going to become cynical about them. What will happen is they'll become as cynical. They aren't now, but we will find ourselves one day in a society where nobody believes in the independence that the judges are actually independent. Mm-hmm. And the respect for the rule of law will decline, and mm-hmm. it'll be might makes right. And we don't have any idea how precious it is to have a functioning judiciary that functions independent from, for example, the government. Right. I and mean, there are societies where the government tells the judge <laughs> yes. what the decision's going to be. Right. And it's guilty. Mm-hmm. All the time, uh, you know that that that's that's an alternative model. Mm-hmm. It's not as good a model. Um, so the judges are judges are suffering the same sort of uh, attacks that uh, people who are trying to be neutral in other walks of life are. And there's a character in the episode we do on judges who just a guy named Jeremy Fogel, uh-huh. who loved being a judge. You listen to his voice and you realize this is a guy who was born to be a judge. Uh-huh. He's just fighting like hell yeah. to keep all of his biases and prejudices out of what he's doing. Yeah, he's great. It, 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 and he's decided even though he loves the job, the job is so threatened, the role is so threatened, he needs to create, step back, and create an institute where he can train judges so they don't do things like Brett Kavanaugh did in his hearings, mm-hmm. where so that they 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 become more emotionally aware, they become more aware of their biases in order to to defend themselves against the attacks they're suffering. Mm-hmm. Sim- in the same way that the refs in the NBA have to get better and better and better to defend themselves from the hostility they're facing. So it, th- that's where we're drifting. Can the judges get better fast enough to defend themselves against the people who are inherently hostile, skeptical towards them. Unbelievable. So much fun stuff. And um, how long is your series going to be? How many episodes are you doing in this first batch? So they're all done. And it's seven uh-huh. with a bonus episode, which is me and Malcolm Gladwell just oh. talk, talking about it at the end. Oh, that's so nice. So it's eight episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And I liked it so much. And the response has been so warm. Yeah. And it's been it's different enough that I think I want to I'll probably do another season. Great. Uh, and see how it goes. And uh, would you choose a different topic? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, it would be related. Yeah. But but it would I'm it wouldn't be referees. The structure would be the same. It would be find a theme and unspool seven or eight stories around that theme. Mm-hmm. So it feels a bit like a book, but it would be a different theme. Are you working on a book right now? Not quite yet. Mm-hmm. Have uh, some ideas? Yes, but I'm still kind of fiddling around with what's worth doing. Last question. Whatever happened with that whole Bannon thing? Where, I don't know if you remember. You spoke to Steve Bannon, I remember, last year. I wrote year. a piece, and he was in the middle of it. And yeah. uh, so I got to know him. I watched the, one of Trump's State of the Union addresses with him right. and had him just do a play-by-play for me. Uh, and I thought it might be interesting to follow Bannon around Europe because uh-huh. that's what he's doing now. He's trying to organize these nationalist movements. Uh-huh. And those people really do do nationalism in a way we don't. They know how to do they it. They do know how to do it. I mean, Absolutely. And he's got the neo – got well, they aren't neo-Nazis, but he's yeah. got various nationalist parties right. who've got oddly – seemingly great sympathy for each other. You would have thought if you're a nationalist Greek that your whole point, your, yeah. your, your, your whole reason for being is to hate the Germans. Yes. But, but in fact, the nationalists all like each other. I don't know That's how that hilarious. works. And he's stitching together this uh, organization of nationalists and uh-huh. helping them achieve their aims. And I think, I don't know how, how serious this is going to be for history, for human history, but the world is receptive to their messages right now. And I thought through him, I might be able to write about that. But, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I haven't decided, but I don't think I'm going to do it. Well, that's one area in the world we definitely need a referee. (laughs) It's kind of lacking. Um, Michael Lewis, everybody, against the rules, right? Um, Listen to it. It's it's so much fun. There's so much great information in there, and it just really gets you thinking, too, you know, just to expand even what that notion of referee is. I think especially even on the micro level, you know, thinking about relationships and families and that type of stuff. We all need good referees out there. Don't yell at the referee, you guys. I guess unless you're a Saints fan and you're mad that the Rams won. Sorry, Saints fans. Thanks, Michael. All right, Larry. Thank you. Thank you.